You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 159, Stalin Bio, Part 4, The Rise of Koba. When we last left Iosef Jugashvili, the future Stalin, he was not only less dedicated to the idea of becoming a priest, but more determined than ever to become an agitator. His hero and mentor, Lado, had been doing such work with a Marxist bent for years, and Iosef was happily following along the groove already cut before him. He was now also a member of the third group, some of whose members would one day rule Soviet Russia. So it will come as no surprise that the future Stalin continued to do less well at the seminary and continued less to care about it. In the fall of 1898-99, he was continuously found with forbidden text and continued to disrespect his teachers and the priest inspectors. But the full break came in the spring of 1899, when Iosef didn't turn up to sit for his end-year exams. That was it for the seminary, certainly for the young man's minders. A document from the seminary dated May 29, 1899, simply states, Dismissed from seminary for failure to appear at the examination for unknown reasons. But there was nothing simple about this. Why was he kicked out? Couldn't he have been allowed to sit for the exams later? The school never said so. What is now known is that there are several possibilities. It could have been his growing list of infractions. It could have been that he was going into his final year, but did not have the money for his dues. But if that was true, why didn't he ask the family friend, the older Soso, for help? 
Furthermore, just a few months after Stalin was kicked out, the school, with the permission from higher authorities, would also release some 45 additional Georgian students for violations, just like Jugashvili's. So, was Stalin a special case? He did not ask to leave. He did not quit the institution himself. And it's worth noting that the school was closed down in 1907, as it only gave the Russian officials headaches. But there was one more possible reason for Soso's separation from the school. The future Stalin may have fathered a child, and the school found out. Later, in his personal archives, a letter was found that informed him of the paternity. If this is why, then it would explain the school not removing its scholarship and why the student did not fight the decision. Again, this possibility cannot be nailed down with facts either. But as the photos of the young Stalin can attest, he wasn't hideous looking, though his left arm was weak and he walked with a limp. But these were probably more than made up for by his passion for social causes, which could have been used to make the young girl think much of him. Sadly, time does not help clear up this mystery that only continues to deepen. As his scholarship was supposed to go towards him one day becoming a priest, or at least a teacher, Jugashvili now owed the state some 600 rubles, an enormous sum. So, when he did not pay the amount owed, not only did the school or state not press charges, but in October of that same year, 1899, when the former student asked for a letter confirming that he had completed four years at the seminary, it was given to him. This, of course, could have been the simple expediency of a bribe, but again, the complete story is not known. Perhaps due to the humiliation or just needing a change of scene, the young Stalin, still thinking of himself as a teacher, spent that summer of 1899 in Tsromi with his friend Miko Davichavili, himself the son of a priest. Soon after reaching home, Miko and Stalin were visited by Lado Ketskhovili. And then soon after that, the police. But as Miko's father was a priest and a member of the community, he was probably tipped off, so nothing incriminating was found. Though Stalin was no longer officially a student, he was still curious and obtained and read every book he could get his hands on. Also, his lecturing did not stop. As Miko was one of the large group of Georgian students kicked out a few months after Jugashvili, he, along with many of them, joined Stalin's study group. During their meetings, the leader would lecture the former students and local workers about their rights and what their collective coming together could achieve. In early November, Stalin got the letter of his four-year completion and used that to get a job in December at the Tiflis Meteorological Observatory, which was run by the state. Yet it wasn't the letter alone that earned the young man the job. Lado's younger brother, Vano, worked there, so put in a good word for him. The job was hardly glamorous, removing snow and dust when they appeared, but it paid above average wages for the area, 
some 20 to 25 rubles a month. His other duty was to record temperatures and barometric pressures each hour. With so much free time, Jugashvili read all he could, which only drove him even more to become an agitator, to share the ideas he was taking in with the workers. He would give lectures during the day and work at night, sleeping and reading when he could. As his knowledge grew, so did his passion for public speaking. But really, it was the agitating that he enjoyed. His speeches would leave the men angry and determined to do something about their lot, which, to the Marxists, was only the beginning. But it could only be the beginning if something was allowed to happen. For the older, established Marxists, like Jordania, who helped publish the Kabili, this slow but steady course was the path to take, a moderate path. But to Lado and Stalin, Jordania's way could take several lifetimes. The Kavili publication was so watered down, it had been approved by the local censors. No, what was needed was action, not words, unless they moved the people to action, which the Kavili certainly did not. Jordania soon heard of the criticism from the two young radicals and told them to forget their dreams of having their own illegal publication. It would do no good to get people into trouble and end up destroying his work. No, slow and easy was the Jordanian way to go. Obviously, the older crowd needed a demonstration. So, Lado, and he seems to be acting alone here for whatever reason, stirred the Tiflis horse-drawn tram drivers to strike on the first day of 1900. The men were working 13-hour days, were paid 90 kopecks at the end of each day, minus certain fines for whatever their bosses could think of. Regardless, the capital could not function without its transportation. The tram drivers were given a pay rise. It had worked. No article of Jordania's could ever produce such results. And yet, there were other results, less desirable. For whatever reason, one of the tram drivers informed Alado, who barely escaped town. But Jugashvili did not. Later that month, having just turned 21, he was arrested. Officially, the charge was that his father, Beso, owed back taxes, having lived there some three decades ago. Then he left the town without formally exiting the village lists. Now Beso's son found himself in the prison fortress. But help was on the way. Miko, Davat Tashvili, and others gathered what money they could and paid off Beso's debts. Strangely, the son was not charged for his debt to the state for his four years at the seminary. Another mystery, Beso was nearby, yet the police did not arrest him for his own debts. Be that as it may, the young Stalin was now free to undergo one of the worst experiences a man can who has recently come of legal age. His mother moved in with him. Word of his arrest had made it back to KK in Gori. Her son was in trouble. The mother dropped everything and came to his rescue, only that he had already been rescued. 
Didn't matter. KK would stay with her son, sleeping with him in the observatory and doing what she did best. Worry over him. The wannabe revolutionary now had a leash. A mommy leash. There's a decent chance that Stalin's arrest was nothing more than a warning. He had not been with Lado in working up the tram drivers, and Beso's debts was the official charge. It could simply be that the authorities were now on to him, wanted a picture, which they got during his incarceration, and planned to start following him. And as the apple does not fall far from the tree, KK also came under surveillance. And yet, the young, hothead agitator continued with his talks to workers, and reading books the seminary would not approve of, and the state, barely. Which did not bode well for the young Stalin. Up until this point, the authorities' main concern were the Armenians, who were suspected of wanting to link up and hatch plans with the Ottoman Empire. But in just two short years, the Armenians were all but forgotten. The state was now concerned over with the explosion of the Marxists throughout Gori. This was the wave that Jugashvili could ride to a prominent position if he didn't end up killed first. On March 21, 1901, the police were sent to raid the observatory. Again, young Stalin was not there that day, but his belongings, just like everyone else's, were rifled through. They certainly could have gotten hold of the young man if they wanted to. They knew where he was at all times. But it seems, again, that their desire was to watch him. Either way, Jugashvili was done with the observatory and with being the mouse to the authorities' cat. He went underground for good. Of course, even with four years of school under his belt, now that he was living off the grid, so to speak. Starvation was never far away. Iosef got some money from students that he tutored, from his friends, or from a line of temporary girlfriends, which was never wasted on drink. Young Stalin, still the energetic intellectual, now had a focus for all his talents, ambitions, and specifically his desire to lead. His days were spent setting up safe houses for future getaways for himself and his comrades, lecturing whenever workers could be discreetly assembled, and setting up illegal presses. The next big thing on the gory Marxist agenda was the coming May Day. The socialists the world over had established this day to commemorate the Haymarket riots of Chicago, in 1886. On that day, the police shot into a group of strikers, whose goal was an eight-hour workday. So, using his illegal presses, Iosef and others incited the local workers, hoping for a big turnout. And Stalin knew that the best chance of success was gathering the largest group of workers, the men of the railway. The number of protesters had grown in Tiflis over the last few years, but never to a respectable number. But this year was to be different. Stalin worked to gather a large group who would march right down Glovelin Prospect in the middle of Tiflis. The police, through their informants, got wind of this, 
so started arresting known troublemakers, those they could find. Stalin was not among that group, thanks to his series of safe houses. As the day came, the police were to be assisted by mounted Cossacks, who held sabers and whips. Still, the workers, some 2,000 of them this time, came on. Yet before they could get very far, the Cossacks blocked their path. A fight ensued. Who threw the first punch doesn't matter. Per Iosef, the workers shouted, Down with autocracy! That's when the Cossacks moved in, slashing with their sabers or lashing out with their whips. The engagement lasted 45 minutes. The surviving workers limped away. Their comrades' bodies laid in the street, which was by now covered in blood. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As for Lado, though he was now hidden away in Baku, he stuck to his belief that a stronger voice in print was needed, so started up Bredzul, The Struggle, which first appeared in September of 1901. In it, Lado, still idolized by Stalin, wrote that the men cut down on the streets of Gori would only bring more over to their cause. Jordania and his paper, the Kavili, were not happy about this, but could do little as Lado was so far away. Of course, Lado was being searched for by the Tsarist police, but as he was in the city's Muslim quarter, was relatively safe. There, his press, codenamed Nina, Russian for Nino, the female patron saint of George, was kept busy, putting out further copies of Bredzul, as well as reprints of the Russian-language Marxist paper Iskra. The originals were being smuggled into Baku, through Tabriz, now Iran. As other presses were found, destroyed, or at least harassed before too long, Nina became the largest underground social democratic press of the whole Russian Empire, and would be so from 1901 to 07. Lado had his springboard. As issues from Nina got to Soso, he was introduced to the Articles of Lenin though these writings were unsigned, of course, which gave him a better understanding of the wider world and the Marxist struggle throughout it. It also taught him to be a better street-level agitator. So, without knowing whose writings they were, 
they spoke to Soso, who agreed with the writer that it was the correct course to enlighten the masses. And yet, the more Soso mixed with the common man, the very people he was fighting for, the young man could not help but see that the people did not want to be bettered. They were not obsessed with self-improvement, as he was. It was very frustrating for this, up to this point, mostly bookish Marxist. And it was on this point whether the struggle was to be led by semi-intellectuals like Jugashvili and Lado, or the workers themselves, that a fracture would begin. On November 11, 1901, when the recently formed Tiflis Committee of the Russian Democratic Workers' Party met, an argument quickly broke out concerning who would make up the leadership. Soso argued that it should be people like him and Lado. But moreover, the workers could not be involved in the leadership at all, as they might inform the police if they ever became mad at their betters. The discussion went round and round, with Soso using the arguments of Lenin he had recently read. But in the end, he and Lenin's argument lost. Still, the other members were impressed with this young man. Afterward, he was to be sent to Batum along the Black Sea. This move was not a punishment, but a promotion. Batum, near the Ottoman Empire, in fact, it was seized from the Ottomans in the 1877-78 war, and now used by Russia to export its Caspian Sea oil. Russia's goal was to strongly disrupt the U.S. Standard Oil's all-but-monopoly on supplying kerosene to Europe. One of the first things Jugashvili did upon arriving at Batum was to make sure that copies of Iskra made its way here. But even better news was that the Marxists had already achieved some level of success in the area. Sunday schools, not of the religious type, were set up for the workers by one of the founders of the third group that one day would rule over the entire country. Stalin may not have been a natural-born speaker. Many people have attested to this. But that did not stop him from jumping in once he reached the port city and at least speak passionately. His language was crude, ironic. Only afterward would he apologize in a backward manner, complimenting himself, by saying that he was speaking the language of the proletariat who were not taught subtle manners or aristocratic eloquence. Soso would then go on to earn his bona fides by working next to the people, by getting a job at the Rothschild Oil Company. The company had been set up by the Rothschild and the Swedish Nobel brothers. But an agitator needs something to agitate against. Otherwise, the masses stay in slumber with their regular pay and their ability to provide for their families. But Jugashvili got his wish on February 25, 1902, when the oil company cut 389 jobs from a total of 900. The company was sensitive enough to the growing anger to give those who were laid off two weeks' pay. But that did nothing, as all the workers quit two days after being told of the severance pay. This was too much for the oil company, which then used its influence with the police to have as many troublemakers arrested as they could find.
The idea was to then implement the tried-and-true method from an owner's point of view of deportation. The police complied with those that paid their wages, and many were arrested. Yet in a moment of complete truth, the police told the oil executives that situations like this would probably happen less if the workers' conditions, pay, and housing weren't so deplorable. But this fell on deaf ears. Soon arrangements were being made to send the arrested men back to their home villages throughout Georgia. But hoping to stop this on March 9th, some of the former workers grabbed up rocks and marched to the transit prison. The trapped men inside could see their comrades coming through the barred windows and urged them on. But as the would-be rescuers got close to the main gate, the police let out a volley. At least 14 workers were now dead, the rocks falling from their hands. Far from feeling bad about the shootings, the police went around the city again, gathering up what known social democrats they could find. Jugashvili was within this group. Though arrested on April 5, 1902, Soso was not as well known as some others. So, his arrest report read, of no specific occupation, an unknown residence, a teacher of the workers. As far as it was known, Soso, before this Batam massacre, as it would be known, only handed out leaflets. Still, now that the police had him, he was charged with incitement to disorder and insubordination against higher authority. Soso was now a known entity to the local authorities. His ability to help the workers was seriously compromised. Not that this mattered for two reasons. First, Jugashvili was sentenced to a year in jail. And two, the Social Democrats sent David Mokhaev Karchtishvili to replace the jailed Soso. What's worse, Kartishvili was of the opinion that only workers should be made full members of the Tiflis Committee, that the intelligentsia, like Soso, should only be in supporting roles, a subservient role. Kartishvili made haste to Batum, where he not only got to work with the peasants, but started attacking Soso's reputation by spreading the idea that Soso had worked the situation to ensure the police would fire on the former workers. And yet, Jugashvili, who might not have been a charming speaker, was still missed by some of the workers, as his sincerity had shown through. Some of the peasants refused to link up with Kartishvili. This was a symptom of the larger question of who should lead the revolution that would in time split the movement. During his jail time, Soso kept referring to himself as Koba, which means Avenger of Injustice, and eventually the name stuck. Be that as it may, the Tiflis committee was not happy with their young protege. First, he had been caught. Next, those that still desired his leadership would not follow Kartishvili. But their anger would have been even more had they known that not once but twice this new Koba had begged to be released from jail, as his mother was alone and elderly, and she needed him. A man for the cause does not ask to be released. 
He does his time, spreading the message of the revolution to the others also in captivity, as they were clearly the downtrodden. And yet their anger would have gone through the roof if they had known that K.K. had asked for her son's release as well. Was he a man or not? Koba was incarcerated for 15 months, but his punishment wasn't over. Let out in July of 1903, he was to be sent away for three years of exile to the Mongol-speaking Burat lands of eastern Siberia. For a boy from Gori, this was his first exposure to the real cold. He tried to escape soon after arriving, but nearly froze to death. The authorities saved him as much as they recaptured him. But on his next attempt, in early 1904, Koba managed to make it to the closest rail line, which he took all the way back to Tiflis. And yet, he deepened his own troubles when he got back by telling everyone who asked a different story each time of how he escaped. On one such story, it was simply that he bribed a delivery man with drink. Another story, and this seemed more plausible on the surface, was that he had stolen an ID card from a gendarmerie, which allowed him unfettered travel. The problem was, the latter story was believed, but it raised more questions than it answered. How could an escapee get such a card? Maybe he was now working for the police in exchange for his freedom. Fewer and fewer doors were open to Koba. What's more, the growing party in Batum did not want him back either, as the stories that he was with the police grew, and they were eventually believed. But the biggest blow came when he found out that though the South Caucasus Social Democrats were going to create a union committee, which would only have nine members, and his name had been added to the list, it was now not clear if he would be allowed to take his place. So, Shundin Batum, his occasional landlady and sometimes mistress there, would have nothing to do with him, and in Tiflis, his status there was still up in the air. Koba went home to Gori. There, he used what influence he had left to get new false papers. Still, the police were after him, and those in Gori knew what he looked like. Their searching for him was intense, so the nerd-wrack Koba changed places eight times each month. So, the question now was, how was he going to help the cause if he had to spend the rest of his life just one step ahead of the law? But as Koba was about to learn, as underground as the world of the Marxist was, there was a sub-world, which helped those wanted by the police, but not wanted by the various Marxist committees. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So it's time for another Harry's Giveaway. Um, You've probably seen it advertised on various websites, or maybe you've been to harrys.com, but they have a new blade called the Truman. It's a very nice... um, 
green color in the handle. It's like a it's like a mature green color. It's, re- it's really classy. Anyway, so I'm going to be giving away the razor, a set of blades, the shaving cream, and I think there's a little bit of um, after post-shaving cream in there as well. I can't remember right now. But anyway, that's what we're going to be giving away. So just send me an email to podcast at gmail.com and put Truman in the subject line. I'll gather all those together probably in three weeks or so, get my girls to draw names and we'll, we'll select another winner and send it out. So again, this is just my way of thanking all of you who listen and all of those who support the show. I really do appreciate it. And yes, members, please jump in on this as well, even though you've got your own drawing. And I uh, just want to say thank you. Um, so do that as soon as you can so I can gather everything together. And I will see you next week. Take care, everyone.